So if you've not done so, please turn with me in your Bibles to page 81. And we begin a a new mini-series through the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Have you ever done this before in church? Opened up your Bibles to Leviticus for a sermon series through a portion of Leviticus. Has anyone ever been in a church that has gone through any part of Leviticus? I'm seeing heads going no. I'm seeing no hands go up. So if anybody's listening to the recording, it seems as if we have a congregation of people that is going through Leviticus for the first time. Uh, Why is that? The aim of this morning's message is to hopefully kind of get our hands a little bit around something that's a bit elusive and hard to get our hands around. What's Leviticus? Why would we do a Bible study through it? There's weird stuff in it. If you've ever read Leviticus, just read through it. That's an accomplishment in and of itself. The ongoing joke with this book is that this is the book that kills the yearly Bible reading plan. So for those of you that have ever tried to read through the Bible, they've got little plans for like read this chapter and this chapter and you start with Genesis and you work your way through Genesis and it's action-packed and exciting and then Exodus continues with a lot of excitement and about halfway through Exodus there's a lot of instructions about how to build a tent and you're kind of like, that was a little lame. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, I'm done. So that's the ongoing joke with Leviticus, and it's probably why a lot of pastors and churches don't work through it, is just on the surface, it seems strange to us. And one of my big hopes today is to challenge that assumption, Leviticus is strange. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not so strange at all. And maybe there's a lot that we cannot just learn or glean from it, but in fact that this is God's Word and it's profitable for our teaching and correction and maybe it's going to rebuke us in certain ways. Maybe we're strange and we're weird. And the reason that we think Leviticus is weird is probably because of our weirdness. So let's just do a few introductory things before we get to a, a couple questions um, first, on the screen behind me, like Leviticus, what is Leviticus? It sounds like it's a disease or something. It's not. Uh, Leviticus, the, the name, it comes from the Greek translation of meaning pertaining to or relating to the Levite priests. So not, again, that exciting on the surface, but that's literally what the word Leviticus means. Uh, In other words, Leviticus as a book is an instruction manual, especially for priests, which might beg the question for many of you in this room, I'm not a priest, and even if I were a priest in today's day, I'm not an Old Testament Levite priest of the Jewish sacrificial system, why does this matter to me? So hopefully we'll get some handles on that, as I said, as we work through it. Another way to think about Leviticus, and this is one of the angles we're going to take, is that Leviticus is a book of rituals. Rituals that were given to the Levite priests in order to do daily and yearly and different rhythms of worship. So what is a ritual then? 
And this is a hard thing to define, but I'm going to go with a book I just read that was published this year on human rituals. This is by Drew Johnson. He teaches in New York. And he has defined ritual this way. I think it's on the screen behind me. It is an ordinary human action with exaggerated or refocused purpose. So ordinary human actions, but when you exaggerate it or you refocus it, repurpose it, it becomes a ritual. So start to think for a moment with me, what are some examples of rituals? Well, in just a moment, after I conclude this message, we are going to do a weekly ritual that this church has participated in from its foundation. Eating and drinking. Except this is no ordinary eating and drinking. It's exaggerated. It is the body and the blood of Jesus. Do you see what I mean? Most meals, even if you think it's literally the body and blood of Jesus, which our church does not hold that position, but if you thought that way, or even if you think it's a symbol of his body or blood, how many meals do you eat where you say, friends, this represents the body and blood of some person? Do you see what I mean? It's exaggerated. Also, it's with a larger group of people. We do it with certain prayers and sayings and scripture readings. Now, maybe some of your dinnertime devotionals happen at dinner or whatever, but you get the point, hopefully. It's refocused. And in fact, it's a refocused, refocused meal. What do I mean? The Lord's Supper was first a meal called what? Passover, a Jewish meal to remember that God had rescued them out of Egypt, that they were in slavery and in bondage, but in God's kindness, he saved a people out of that slavery and bondage. And the way that they were to know and remember the freedom that God gives is to eat a meal together. Because it's not just what the meal symbolizes, it's what that annual festival meal does to a people. Do you realize that the Passover ritual, when you read it in the Old Testament, you're to take the little boys and girls and the youngest in the room as a family, you're supposed to have that one ask a question. Mom, Dad, it's supposed to be the dad, but Dad, tell us what happened on that night. And he doesn't just tell them the story, they reenact the story by having the meal together. In other words, it is forming them, it is shaping them as a people, because part of knowing God is not just knowing things about God in your mind or being told something. It would have been a much simpler process. They'd be like, hey, we want the children in our family to know something, like the Passover, that we're a people that were in bondage, but we've been saved. Then you could just tell them, hey, kids, we were in bondage, but now we're free. I mean, that would do the job, wouldn't it? But that's not the kind of knowing that God is interested in the Bible. He wants you to know, know, experience, know. And in fact, that's one of the refrains in the Exodus, so that you may know, and it's the word used to say, I have experienced and known a person. Do you know God like that? God wants you to know him like that. Therefore, he has commanded and instructed rituals that are going to form your knowledge of him and shape you as the person that you are. 
So that was just one example, and we could go on and on with other examples, couldn't we? What is baptism but just an over-exaggerated bath? It's a cleansing. It's getting washed, but you do it in front of other people. And again, you hopefully get the idea. What is prayer? It is asking. Like the word prayer in the Greek language, when you and I read it, we see prayer, you immediately think talking to God or something. But the word prayer is just a normal, ordinary word in the original Greek language that just means to ask for something. It's, it's to ask, to make a request. Is that ordinary? Yeah. I mean, we make requests to people all the time. But how many times do you make requests and do you bow down to somebody or close your eyes? Do you see what I mean? It's an exaggerated, ordinary thing for a different, special purpose. So let me cut to the chase with Leviticus. When you read these things, you're going to, on the surface, think, that's not ordinary. <laughs> like, I don't typically slit people's throats or animals' throats, not people. They don't do human sacrifices. Although human sacrifices would have been common in their world, they would have forbidden human sacrifices. So, is it normal or ordinary for you and for me to take an animal by the throat and slit it? And you're thinking, no, that's not normal. Well, remember your cultural biases. How many of you are farmers? How many of you live in an agricultural society? I mean, of course it's going to seem weird because you aren't dealing with animals on a regular basis. Like if I'm going to eat meat and I'm living in this world that Leviticus is written in, I'm going to probably prepare the meat myself. Like I'm going to get an animal from the animals I own and I'm going to prepare it, meaning I'm going to be the butcher, I'm going to be the plucker, I'm going to be the one that cleans it, and I'm going to be the one that prepares it. We think, oh, this is so barbaric that they do all this stuff. Like, really? Really? Do you realize how much meat we Americans consume every day and year? If a Levite priest knew the amount of slaughter that's happening at the slaughterhouse of the butcher shop for our idolatry of certain things that we do, or our festivals, or our parties, oh my, would we look weird to them. Do you start to see the point here? They're not that barbaric and weird. And in fact, one of the things we're going to encounter as we go through these offerings in Leviticus is the ordinary activity of eating a meal. In some of its simplest form, Leviticus and the offerings that we're going to work through in these next few weeks the main point of them, or the main activity of them, the ordinary activity, is eating a meal. Is that, is that weird? No, of course not. And in fact, this meal is a meal with God. And if you can remember that, then you'll know where this sermon is going. An ordinary meal, except with God. Because He wants to be near you. He wants to draw near to you through an ordinary, everyday meal. So the last thing I want to say about rituals is that maybe, not only is it hard to define, but I think a lot of us, just my, my guess, and being around Christians and especially Protestant Christians like many of you in this room, is that we kind of look at rituals as bad, as like too formal or too orderly or some sort of like, yeah, no, we, we want to be free. 
and, and not have somebody telling us what to do with our worship or our lives or this or that. And I want to push against that notion. I want you to realize that it is more than likely to our detriment that we do not have a more ritualized view of our lives and worship. Rituals are ordinary activities that are exaggerated or refocused for a purpose. And what we're going to see is that the rituals in Leviticus were given to the Levite priests from God. And so the corresponding rituals that we have, again, are they from God? And a big question we're going to ask today, it's the next slide actually. This is kind of the first big idea. Who prescribes your rituals? Who prescribes our rituals as a church? Is it God? Because that's the fundamental point of Leviticus. God is commanding and speaking and telling them what to do and how to do it. It might seem obvious, it might seem too simple, but the profound depth of, you have rituals, my friend, you do. The main question with our rituals is not, do I have them or not? It's who is prescribing them. Who or what society or community is shaping the things that you do in a daily, weekly, habitual pattern? Let me give you an example, so that way hopefully you all can think about this. Have you gone to a wedding? Yes? Gone to a wedding? What did you do? It's a, it's a ritual. It's an exaggerated, ordinary thing where two people confess their love to each other and they might, you know, have some walking down an aisle and they get in fancy dresses and like, you know, it's, it's exaggerated. It's, it's above and beyond. You don't wear that dress every day, right? You, you don't line up as, you know, little pigeons and people up on stage that often. But the core of a wedding is, is very much an ordinary activity. But where did it come from? The Bible? I want you to think about which Bible verses you would go to to form what you're supposed to do in your wedding. And if you're not thinking of any, it's not because you don't know your Bible well. The hint is there aren't any. It means that we have improvised. We have just done what our society just does. If you look at your wedding or weddings of your friends or family members, it will be heavily based on the cultures represented by those people. In this church, I've had the privilege of officiating weddings, and it's been cool. Like earlier this year, there was the combination of cultures, and you get to see how those cultures kind of come together at a wedding. But at the end of the day, it's not because God's Word said, this is what you should do at a wedding. Even though they're upstanding, godly Christian people in these settings. So the point I'm getting at is that you need to realize that so much of your life is ritualized. And whether it's advertisers or whether it's the tech company that's trying to create a ritual where you do this all the time. Anybody have this ritual down? 
Anybody ever look at somebody and wonder, oh, wow, they're really godly. They're praying. Oh, no, they're just on their phone, you know? Somebody's telling you that you need to do this for some reason or another, for some purpose. Is it good for you? Is it from God? Look at Leviticus 1.1 with me. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. Three different ways we hear that God is speaking. The Lord called, he spoke, and then he said. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Do you guys know what a red-letter Bible is? At some point, I don't know when it started, and I don't know the history behind it, but at some point in, I think it's mostly English Bibles, uh, editors decided to highlight the words of Jesus with red letters, and the rest of the letters of the Bible are black. So that means that you'll be reading your Bible, and Leviticus will be very black because there's no words from Jesus. And then you'll get to Matthew that we've been working through, and what are you going to find? A lot of red letters. And then there's a couple in Acts, and then other than that, the rest of your Bible's black. So that's the red-letter Bible. If you were to do a red-letter Old Testament, the words of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, guess which book would be dripping with red? Well, Leviticus. Because Leviticus is one of the few books that is the words of the mouth of God to Moses. One of the reasons I think you should have a higher view of Leviticus is the fact that it is the straight-up words coming out of God's voice, mouth, to Moses. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, which assumes a context. And my hope is that there is one giant takeaway today, one of them that I'm, I'm desperately longing for you to get, is the story of Leviticus. Because most of my understanding of Leviticus is it's just a bunch of rules, rituals, and what to do when you're on your menstrual cycle, and what to do when you have a discharge, and what to do if you've got a scab or skin disease, or what to do if I should eat or not eat this food. Well, does it have uh, hooves or does it not have hooves? Does it have scales or not have scales? And you just read through it and you're like, what in the world is going on? That's Leviticus, right? Wrong. I mean, it is that. But oh, it's so much more. It's a story. The law is the word we use for the first five books of the Bible. And the law, the first five books of the Bible, is a story. It's a narrative. And in fact, Leviticus is a central part of the narrative. And so I want to show this diagram up here. And it shows you that these are the first five books of the Old Testament. And these first five books have paralleling ideas. Genesis to Deuteronomy, Exodus to Numbers, and Leviticus. And Leviticus is the center of the first five books. If any of you have any understanding of like Old Testament and Jewish faith, you understand that the Torah, that's these five books, the first five books of the Bible are like the main thing you read if you're a Jewish person. 
So like to help you understand this, I for a year worked at a Starbucks in Washington DC and became a friend with a rabbi who came every day to this Starbucks. And so here's a learned Jewish man and every day he's meeting with college students at the college where I was working at Starbucks. And when he would meet with them, he would teach them the Old Testament in Hebrew and he would tell them what it means. And so I'm at that time actually studying my master's degree and I'm learning Hebrew and I'm wanting to like chat it up with them like, hey, you don't have a student to chat up. You want to chat up with me. Let's talk about Hebrew. Let's talk about the Old Testament. And the most faci- one of the most fascinating things of learning about this guy is he never teaches anything outside of the first five books of the Bible. I was like, hey, so tell me, what do you guys think of Isaiah 53? So any of you that know Isaiah 53, it seems like, wow, there's going to be a Messiah, a king that's going to come, but instead of conquering, he's going to be killed. And it uses the language of he's pierced for our transgressions. And Christians have used that to say, wow, the Jewish faith points forward to Jesus. And I asked him about it, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, well, you don't know. You're a rabbi. Like, how do you not know? Like, this is a part of your scriptures. He's like, we only really spend time in the first five books of the Bible. All that to say, I want you to just realize, like, this is, to understand the Old Testament, you need to understand these five books. And there's more to the Old Testament But these are important. And what does this chart show you? Leviticus is at the center. It's at the center, not just in terms of there's five and it's the middle one. It's at the center of the story. What do I mean? Genesis tells you that God created the heavens and the earth. And that he made them for God and man to live together, to dwell together. That he wanted to draw near and be with them. But as they rebelled against God and they rejected his authority, they were expelled from his presence. And so if you remember those early chapters of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it tells us this story of God walking and being with his people. And as you fast forward through that story, you're kind of wondering, when will God and humanity live in harmony together again? And it's not till Exodus, when they're at the worst of the worst, like it goes from Genesis of being really good to really bad, where they're enslaved by the Egyptians and they have no freedom and they can't worship and they're working like dogs, no days off. It's terrible. So God sets them free and the reason he set them free is so that they may dwell with and worship God. So turn over your eyes. Most of you probably don't even have to turn a page. Look at the way the story of Exodus ends. After they're set free, God's people are now free. Like, yes, we're free. We're no longer under this terrible tyranny of the Egyptian king Pharaoh. We can now worship our God. And they go to Mount Sinai and they get instructions for how to worship him and how they're to live and what that's going to be like. And they say, we're going to do all of it. And if you know the story, you know that they don't do it. Like immediately, they start worshiping other gods and it's pitiful and pathetic. And then you're like, wait, yeah, we're, we're just like that too. Um, but then this, this is how Exodus ends. Chapter 40, look at verse 34. This is after they got all the instructions for the tent, the tent where God and humans will meet again. It was a garden in Genesis, but in Exodus, it's going to be a tent because they're not in their land yet and it's going to move around. And so they built the tent, just like God said. If you just 
put your eyes up to verse 16. Look, it says, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So that helps you. Like, they heard from God how they're going to build the tent, and he did it. So verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's the same word for tent. So the tent is now filled with the glory of God, and Moses was not able to enter the tent. Why? Because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it, in it by night, in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Even Moses isn't allowed in the tent. Leviticus 1.1, read it again now. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. What's the preposition next? From the tent. Where's Moses? Outside the tent. Where's the presence and the glory of God? In the tent. So you have a tent, and God's in it, and nobody's allowed to go in. Even Moses, the one who got the instructions from God, the one who was at the mountain at Mount Sinai in the presence of the cloud and the fire and the lightning and all of the stuff that's going on in Exodus. But now that it's in the tent, Moses can't go in. You following the story? Yeah? Now turn to the book of Numbers, verse 1. Numbers 1.1. 1, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, and now what's the preposition? Not from the tent, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt. The story at Leviticus, if you go back to that chart where Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the story in Genesis is moving at a really fast clip. And then it slows down at Mount Sinai, even though there's 400 years in Egypt, but then it slows down at chapter 20 of Exodus, really slow. And there they are for about a month, from Exodus to Numbers. Leviticus is slowing the whole story down to tell you what. God has spoken from the tent and tells you in Leviticus how you can come into the tent. The book of Numbers from that point on allows then people to be with God, humans, and God, the glory cloud, the tent, they can actually dwell together. How? That's what Leviticus is all about. Answering the question of how can a holy and righteous and just and good God be with people who are not? In other words, Leviticus is a small sampling of the story of the whole Bible. How can a holy God dwell and be with a sinful people. 
if you think that you just think, I can be in God's presence however I want, then you need to turn to another story in Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter 10. Because in Leviticus chapter 10, we have a little lesson, and it's a few moments in Leviticus where you have something other than rules. So this is why I want to make sure you get the narrative portion before we enter into all of the rules and rituals. There is a narrative that these rules and rituals is pushing forward. And listen to this story in Leviticus chapter 10. So at this point, the tent is done. They have been given instruction from God before chapter 10. They've been told how they're to enter God's presence. And they're told that they can, but only in this particular way. So now, Nadab and Abihu, who's that? The sons of Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron is the high priest. Remember, what is Leviticus? What does the word mean? Things for the Levite priests, concerning Levite priests. Aaron is a Levite priest. Aaron is the high priest. He's like the top dog of the high priests. His sons are Nadab and Abihu. They took censers, in verse 1, they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all of the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. What's this story supposed to communicate? God has spoken and prescribed how you are to worship him. Do not come near to God by any other means or way than the means, except for the means that he has prescribed. You have rituals. We have rituals. But who is prescribing them? Who is telling you what to do and how to do it? Do you think, well, that's just Old Testament idea. Friend, that is not an Old Testament idea. This is directly applicable to us today as Christians. God has continued to prescribe how we are to worship and who we are to worship. That fundamental reality has not changed. The details of the how have, but not that he has spoken. So therefore, as we begin this series in Leviticus, we must press in and ask ourselves who or what is shaping the way that we do our rituals. And I don't think that this is just for church. It's especially for church. Like, why do we do what we do at Embassy Church? Do you have any guesses based on this message? Are you knowing where this is going? Well, because God has commanded it. Why don't we do other things when we gather on Sundays? Because God has not commanded it. So what have we done so far? Have we read a scripture? Is that commanded? Yes, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Do not give up the reading of scripture. Just reading it. 1 Timothy 4 also says to teach and preach the scriptures. That's what I'm doing right now. You're commanded to do that. And that's not the only place. 
could look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he says, in season or out of season, preach the word. So we're supposed to preach the Bible. We're supposed to teach the Bible. We're supposed to read the Bible. Colossians chapter 3 says that we should let the word of God dwell in our hearts richly, and we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our heart. Command that you and I gather together and we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why do we sing? Well, because God has prescribed and told us that we should sing when we gather together. What did I say at the start of our service and repeat again in the middle of our service? We're going to take an offering. Why do we take an offering when we gather together? Because God has commanded in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 that you should give to God what he has laid on your heart to help the poor, to care for the expenses of missionaries, and support the work of the church. You're also commanded to pay for your pastors. Most pastors don't like to quote that verse, or they love to quote that verse. Hopefully we've got some balance in there. You should know in Galatians chapter 6 or in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that the expenses of the church should in part pay for those who are teaching you the Bible so that they can give their time and energy to teach you the Bible. So therefore we take an offering because we're commanded in the Bible to take an offering. We're commanded to pray and offer up supplications in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and pray for government leaders, pray for the word of God to spread rapidly in 1 Thessalonians. Do you you get my point? Like we could just go on and on and show you that we have done every week in this worship service what God commands. And we don't do rituals unless we see them as commanded. It does not mean that they're necessarily bad rituals. We improvise all the time. Remember our weddings. We've improvised basically the whole thing from our culture. Does that mean it's bad that you should stop getting married or just have the wedding be, just say a covenant, I do, okay, we're done. I mean, some of you might like that idea, right? It'd save a lot of money and time, but weddings are important. We should ritualize them because they're special and they're significant and marriage is a big deal. So don't hear me say that other extra-biblical rituals are all bad. But some are. And even some commanded rituals from God get turned dark. Or they're empty. So for us, we need to think, whose rituals are we doing? And then are we doing them well to our good and for the benefit of our lives and the people around us? These are the questions that we want to be considering every day, but especially as we work through Leviticus. So that's the big idea, number one. Who prescribes our rituals? Is it God? Second big idea. What is the goal of our rituals? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 1. And you will see in verse 2 what I believe is the introduction and the big storyline idea of Leviticus, which is why we're just camping out on these two verses. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And then he said these words, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. When any one of you When any man, I have a a, a translation behind me, I think. This is a very wooden translation of this verse, the one before that. 
Yes. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man offers an offering to Yahweh, you shall offer your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So when you look at it like this and you read it in a very literal way from the Hebrew straight to English and you don't smooth it out like a lot of English translations do, what do you notice? And I notice that the word offer happens a few times. Do you guys notice that too? When a man offers an offering, you shall offer your offering. And that's why people don't translate it that way, because that sounds like terrible English. Like, choose a different word. So what does the word offer mean? It means to draw near or to bring, which is what you have here. To draw near or to bring something. In other words, God is speaking and saying, now when you want to get near, I'm going to give you instructions, and I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to give you instructions about how to come near. That's the big idea. That's where Leviticus fits in that storyline of Genesis to Deuteronomy. How can God get near and dwell with his people? How could they even presume to come near him? And the answer we're going to see as we work through it is that it requires death, it requires atonement, it requires blood. But the big idea that we're talking right now as we introduce Leviticus is that God wants and commands and prescribes that we do draw near, that we do bring near to him our gifts and our offerings. Is that too simple for you? Because it shouldn't be. One of the best things about rituals and, and language and church and religion is that the repetition of the rituals. So I want you to think of not the one-time rituals like, let's say, for example, a wedding, but the repeated rituals like prayer. The repetition of a ritual forms you, which is what I've been trying to argue today. It forms you. It's not just what it does. That's one angle that we could be talking about, but today in this series, I want to focus on what we're doing and how the embodied practice of these rituals shapes you into the kind of people that you are. So prayer, it forms you. When you come near to God in prayer, what sort of embodied actions do you take? Are you like this? Dear God, I pray that you give me a good day. Amen. Is that, is that your posture? Does that matter? Is there a prescribed ritual in the New Testament for how to pray? And actually, there is. There's specific instructions about ways to pray, and they're multi-layered and faceted in the Bible. You can raise your hands. You can bow and be prostrate. You can fast. There's things that we do with our body, and they matter. So here's, here's the other vision. What if I do this? What if I pray, and I draw near to God like this, and I bow my head? Now, on the outside, you could say, Phil, that symbolizes your submission and your reverence and your humility. And it does. And I, again, that's an angle to talk about this. But I want you to think, 
what would this do to me? How would this shape me as a person if this was my posture day after day after day? Do not think of your spirituality as just words you say so it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Leviticus is here to tell us that what we do and how we do it matter in how we are bringing our offerings to God, our prayers to God, the form to which it takes. God prescribes these matters and tells us how to do them because they do matter in shaping us the kind of people we are. Think of those two pictures. What kind of person do you think I am if I'm just laying and just whatever in my prayers versus the one that bows? Do you think I might end up becoming a more humble, a more contrite, a more earnest person in terms of my relationship with God than the one that's just kind of flippant and relaxed and we're just cool, me and Jesus, we're cool. Do you see what I mean? It really is something I want us to be thinking about. And these concepts, because not only are they very clear in Leviticus, but they're not as emphasized in our church traditions. And so this could stretch us a bit. Are you okay with being stretched a little bit? Or do you just want to keep doing things the way that you do? You need to be asking, why do you do what you do? What end, what goal does it have in forming you? Are you doing it because God said it? That's question one. Who prescribes this ritual in the first place? And how is it shaping me? So here's, here's a benefit for us to kind of sink our teeth on and, and kind of our minds for you to meditate on. Rituals give you a script for when you don't know what else to do. You and I are going to walk through seasons of our life where it is going to be so devastating and so hard and so painful we need somebody to just tell us this is what you need to do. And it's best if it's God. It's best if, it's, even if it's not God, it's improvised from the scriptures and Christian tradition. I was recently noticing in a, the book that I mentioned, Drew Johnson's book on rituals, where he says that American Christians have done a particularly poor job, it seems, at dealing with grief and death because of our rituals, the way that we have made death this money-making machine and system of the way that we go about our burials and our funerals and all kinds of observations around that. I mean, you just pick one thing like that and ask, do we have good rituals to help people in those moments? Here's another argument for why you should care about doing rituals and patterns and habits is because you will go deeper on a basic concept if you can know it. So here's a good example in my own life. We mentioned prayer. And how about the words of prayer? Jesus says to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Our earth is in heaven. And you can go on and finish the rest, right? I've memorized that. I pray that quite regularly. And some of you might be like, oh, that's just kind of wooden and that's too ritualized. And I would beg to differ. I would tell you that by having words prescripted to me from Jesus, I actually can go deeper into those words every time because I know what they mean and I know how to pray and saturate my mind with the words of God from these prescribed words from Jesus. 
Every relationship, drawing near to a wife, I've learned, is a process of understanding her cues and mannerisms and facial expressions. And the more I spend time with that person, the more we're doing the same kind of ordinary things. But as we do it over and over, we grow deeper and closer. And if we want to draw near and be truly one flesh, it's not going to happen overnight. Or to make another argument, the scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 10 today said that we should draw near to God, so do not give up meeting together. The reason you should come to church every week is not just because God commanded you. It's because you understand that God commanded you rituals for your good. If you come to church every once in a while, I mean, sure, it'll have some benefit. But especially in the hardest seasons of your life, just being told by the scriptures, do not give up meeting together. I'm going through a lot right now, and I'm depressed, and I'm struggling. Do not give up meeting together. There's a pastor guy that quoted, in seasons of depression, going to church just on one Sunday doesn't really do much. But going to church every Sunday during that depression can really do a lot. This is what having the repeated exercises of doing the same things over and over again. It's like everything we do. Uh, Take music. Take sports. Any discipline of any sort, you need to learn a new language. You need to learn new concepts, new patterns, new ways to manipulate your body. And you've got to start with the basics. And you're only going to have a basic ability to play a sport or play a music if you just stay there. But then you keep repeating them over and over again. And your times tables, you get them done out of the way so you can do deeper levels of math. Deeper forms of communication. Deeper relationships happen. We can draw near to God when we commit ourselves to the repetition of weekly church, daily prayer, daily scripture readings, regular get-togethers with other Christians. These are the applications of just saying why it's so good that you're here today but it will be insufficient if it's just today. Come back next week and the week after, not because we're keeping attendance, not because this is all about, oh, we need our church to grow and be big, because for your good, God prescribed these commands for your good because he wants to draw near to you. So as we close out this service, we're going to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Remember what I said earlier? Do not draw near to God except for the way that he has prescribed. God does want to draw near, and in fact, he has taken the initiative and first step. He sent his son into the world, and he died in our place. Come back in the coming weeks for the good of this ritual, And you will learn in Leviticus that in order to first go into the glory of God's presence, death has to happen. And death has happened. Death has happened on our behalf. A substitute has taken our place. His name is Jesus. The God-man who became human, drew near to us. That's how much God wants to draw near. That's why these rituals exist of bread and cup why we do it every week. I I don't understand anybody that says, but if we do it every week, it'll get old or repetitive. What? Since when is hearing the gospel get old? Since when is singing 
get old. I mean, maybe some songs get old and you're tired of it, but you get the point. Like, we sing every week. We read the scriptures every week. Why wouldn't we take the bread and the cup every week to remind ourselves of the ritual that was commanded? Remember the gospel. The world was broken. Heaven and earth were separated, but God made a way. We sang this earlier. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You made a way through your son Jesus. So we need to see that in Leviticus as we work through it, and you need to see it now before we do the ritual of the bread and the cup. To what end are you going to do what you do? Who prescribed it, and to what end? Those are the two big questions that we're going to work through. Let's work them through them even now as we take the bread and the cup. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for speaking to us. We give you thanks that you are not a silent God who is far off and distant and does not care. Leviticus, if it says anything, tells us you do care. You are not far off. You want to draw near and you will make a way even if it requires your own blood. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being a God of infinite power but intimate love. We thank you, God, that we do not have to make up rituals on our own and improvise with our own clever ideas, but you've given us the church. You've given us community. You've given us church history. You've given us your word, and through all of these elements, the church, the church history, the traditions. We, God, have improvisations of your word, and we have clear commands from your word, and teachers to teach us your word. We just want to thank you, God, that you have provided a way for us to make sense of what to do when we have no idea what to do. So thank you for caring about our lives, wanting to be with us and dwell in it, even in the most difficult days of our lives. We're thankful, God, that you want to be right there with us. So teach us, teach us, God, how to draw near to you at all times of our lives, in every season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.